This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. In this week's episode of Race to Value, I ask you, our listeners, to contemplate the faith and sacrifice of every Black ancestor. Black History Month is this month, and it's a time to recognize and honor the contributions and achievements of the millions of African Americans who have helped build our nation and enrich our culture. It's a time to remember leaders who move the masses like Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, John Lewis, and others. In the inspiring actions of those like Jesse Owens, Rosa Parks, Frank Robertson, Ruby Bridges, and so many more. On a personal level, it's a time to contemplate the faith and sacrifice of every Black ancestor who in relative obscurity pressed forward every day and lived a routine of duty and determination. This month takes on an even greater meaning and a greater importance given the context to which we find ourselves. Certainly over the last many months, we have been exposed to the great inequities that have existed in our society for far too long. We have one major obligation to each other. That is to tell the truth. And the truth is there are so many inequities in our society for black people, including the manifestation of institutional racism within our nation's health system. And as leaders in value-based care, we have to be accountable to the endeavor that we are about. We endeavor in fact, to ensure that every patient receives the best treatment possible so that they can live the life that they are intended to live, that we endeavor to create the opportunity for health equity, and that is true regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or otherwise. This week's episode is truly an important one. As we consider racial disparities in care in our conversation today, and reflect on the importance of Black History Month, I'd like for us to consider how value-based care can work to ensure true population health and parity in health outcomes for all. We are so honored to have with us our guest this week, Dr. Lerla Joseph, an African-American physician, businesswoman, humanitarian role model, mentor, and philanthropist. In 2012, she founded the Central Virginia Coalition of Healthcare Providers, 
CV Chip, one of the nation's few minority-owned accountable care organizations. As the CEO of this ACO, her mission is to assure high-quality health care for underserved populations in Virginia. Dr. Joseph not only leads a successful ACO, one that has $7.5 million in savings over the last four years, she also led medical missionary trips to Haiti for the last 16 years. And as a community leader, she's also served on boards for Richmond Community Hospital and the Bon Secours Health System, and was the first woman elected president to the Richmond Medical Society. This year, she was a strong men and women in Virginia history honoree, a program that honors prominent African-Americans past and present who've made noteworthy and admirable contributions to the Commonwealth, the nation, and their profession. Dr. Joseph is a shining example that Black history is around all of us. She demonstrates the qualities of strength, leadership, and excellence, and her life and her stories show the power of human determination, courage, and integrity in confronting society's obstacles. We are so excited to share her story in this week's Race to Value. Dr. Lerla Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today in this week's Race to Value. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm always excited to talk about CV Chip. Well, Dr. Joseph, I thought as we started our conversation today, I would reference a quotation from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, he was an early proponent of value-based care, and as a civil rights leader, he recognized how the manifestation of institutional racism creates health inequities and racial disparities in care. And Dr. King is known for his strong position regarding injustice in healthcare and was once quoted as saying, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhumane. And this is a reminder for all of us and our listeners today, the importance of health equity and value-based care. Every human does deserve an equal opportunity to be healthy and as leaders, we must advocate as such. And as we reflect on the importance of social justice and health equity in our conversation today, I thought I would just make brief reference to a few of the population health research data points that really shows some of the disparities in care along racial lines. I mean, it just seems like there's never been any period in American history where the health of blacks was equal to that of, of whites. And I think there's a big opportunity that I'd like to discuss with you today in terms of how we can remedy this within value-based care. So a couple of things for our listeners to understand, African-American patients tend to receive lower quality health care, including treatments for cancer, HIV, prenatal care, diabetes, and so forth. They're less likely to re receive treatment for cardiovascular disease, and they're more likely to have unnecessary limb amputations. African-American men in particular have the worst health outcomes of any major demographic in the country. And health disparities also affect African-American women due to increased death rates from breast cancer and a threefold risk of dying during pregnancy. So Dr. Joseph, as we look at how we continue to have these disparities in care, can you speak to how your ACO is working to advance health equity to overcome the structural manifestation of racism that is unfortunately all too common in medical care. How is your organization examining the health-related social needs of your patient population and then working to address those in an individualized and culturally relevant way? I've devoted most of my life to trying to bring about equity in healthcare for African-Americans. I am an African-American physician. 
I chose to practice in the locations that I've practiced, inner city Richmond, I've also practiced in rural areas. And when I first learned about accountable care organizations, I was really excited that at this point in our history, we might be able to bring equal access as well as equal value to African-American patients. Having a health card, uh, a health insurance card is not enough in terms of getting the proper care that African-Americans need. Our population needs physicians that look like them, understand their cultural background. And an accountable care organization brought that together for our patients because not only were physicians practicing in silos and not collaborating with the care that they provided with patients, they just didn't have the tools that they needed in a lot of instances. And so with the accountable care model, you are focusing on prevention, you're focusing on chronic disease management, and you're also focusing on collaborating with community partners, as well as your peers, and how we address some of the difficulties within our population of patients. So the accountable care model for me was a godsend. I had been advocating for health insurance for all. We've gone through multiple iterations of that happening. First on the Clinton administration, I was vocal proponent then because more people need to have access to healthcare. It should be a right. It should not be a privilege. And then once you have healthcare, you should have physicians who are your advocates and concerned about your well-being. And so within the Accountable Care Organization, we have been able to put those pieces together. It's not perfect by any means, but certainly we're closer to that mark within the accountable care environment. Dr. Joseph, I have a follow-up question for you on racial disparities in care. We have all this mounting research showing that if you control for all variables that may contribute to health disparities, like education, income, access to health insurance, African-Americans are still receiving the worst quality health care of any demographic in the country. However, we've got a large segment of our society that does not believe that institutional racism exists in health care. How do we begin to have an open conversation as a society when it comes to recognizing systemic racism when there is denial that it even exists? For those that resent the Black Lives Matter movement and say all lives matter, how can we encourage them in a conversation to foster better understanding about the presence of racism in our society? It does take a, first of all, a concerted effort to recognize that there are inequities. I used to tell people, if you walk into a room and you're the only African-American in that room, or you're the only person of color, whether you're Asian or Indian or whatever, you should ask the question, why aren't there equal representation across the spectrum in our society. We represent almost uh, 12% of the population, but we look around, there are places that are completely devoid of our presence. And so that's the first recognition there, just to see the fact that others are not represented. And 
a question should be asked. Not just African-Americans asking the question, but whites asking the question or Hispanics or whomever, where there is an opportunity for improvement. That is the part of it, the, the recognition of the fact that we have developed institutions whereby when you see an African-American, it's an oddity. And I think that is part of that conversation we should have. We also have to have a conversation about how we have structured our society such that education depends on your zip code. I went to a public health association meeting a couple of years ago. My niece was at that time a PhD student and was presenting there. And their motto was, your health should not be determined by your zip code. And so we do not share the wealth of the United States in every zip code. And so we have people and children growing up um, not getting an equal education. And as a result of that, not having equal access. So the recognition of the problem has to take place and each of us have a responsibility to ask the question. We are a diverse country, ethnic groups, religions. And so when they are not equally represented, then that conversation should take place. Well, Dr. Joseph, this month, as we celebrate African-American history to pay tribute to the generations of African-Americans who struggled with adversity to achieve full citizenship in American society, that sense of palpable pain and frustration of social injustice is all the more visceral than it has been, at least in my lifetime. It seems like we have at this moment in our society a cultural zeitgeist for civil rights and injustice that's been awakened in this collective consciousness of all ethnicities, which is promising in, in terms of progress. And it seems like many are now beginning to acknowledge that Black history is American history and that we should acknowledge and celebrate it continuously as fundamental to the strength and diversity of our country. As we celebrate the legacy of countless Black Americans that have shaped our history, can you provide your perspective on what this means to you as a female African-American physician? How do you think we should use this time to elevate the voices behind positive social change to provide inspiration and encouragement during these challenging times? I came along when things were fully segregated. As a matter of fact, I graduated high school in 1970. My class was the last graduating class of a segregated high school. So I'm, I'm very familiar with segregation and how it impacts your mobility in our society. Things uh, started to improve in the 70s. There was some awareness at that time of the inequities that were clearly structural. They were designed that way within our government, within our social construct. All of those things were acceptable at that time. However, when the 70s came along as a result of some of the civil unrest, getting access to the ballot, the civil rights movement, there was a desire to make some improvements. Part of that improvement for me personally was an opportunity to go to medical school. Prior to that time, I probably would have never gone to medical school other than they had what they call affirmative action. But even after we had affirmative action and we could see the impact 
that it had uh, within the African-American community. And not just the African-American community, white women benefited from this as well. There was always a backlash. There's always a tendency to retreat to the notion of supremacy and superiority. And so even in this time, this is 50 years since the civil rights movement, affirmative action, and things that really opened up America to a certain extent to African-Americans, we also have a backlash. And that's where we are at this moment. I see this moment as an opportunity to, for America to either move forward or to become entrenched. And we see both forces happening right now. We see uh, forces of saying, let's have this conversation. Let's do something about this. And then on the other side, we, we see it saying, no, this is not something that we truly want. I mean, they don't speak of it in terms of racism. They speak of it in terms of, the, of their lifestyle and, and their way of life. These are all code words for maintaining the construct that there's not equity within our society. There are small movements. I actually belong to an organization or participate with an organization here in Richmond called Coming to the Table, where we have African-Americans and whites coming together to talk about some of these issues and examine them in a, a different perspective. It's very uncomfortable to talk about these things and, and to acknowledge it. And so there are these small movements and forces to make this happen. What we see sometimes with younger people is that they are not as patient. And so sometimes it comes across as if they're being aggressive and demanding. But if you are living within a system that you don't see opportunity for yourself or being denied, not because of your ability, but because of the color of your skin, then it does lead to strong resentment. And sometimes with young people, they just don't have that patience. So there are opportunities for us to always have these conversations, acknowledging the fact that when we look around, we see these disparities. It's interesting that you mentioned the quote of Dr. Martin Luther King, not having access to healthcare, because I used that quote recently when I addressed a, a church congregation about African-Americans not willing to take the COVID vaccine. Well, within that context, I was pointing out that because the healthcare system has not always been equitable to our people, there's always a concern that they are not getting a fair deal when it comes to healthcare and, and new things that are coming about and research and those sorts of things. And so there are so many past experiences that have shaped the thinking of African-Americans and sometimes part of their unwillingness and part of the disparities is because they just have such suspicion and do not show up to the doctor when they should, when they have symptoms. And we have to figure out ways that we can dispel even those notions that even when they have access, even when they have a health insurance card, even when they're having symptoms, they should come in, but there's a distrust of the healthcare system. So it's so many different things that we have to work on at the same time.
Thanks for your commentary on this really important issue, Dr. Joseph. I want to stay on this topic just a bit longer and tie it into value-based payment. So that we have this industry movement to value-based care that's emerged more than two decades ago to improve quality while containing costs. However, the impact on racial health disparities has been limited. And last year in Health Affairs, there was an article entitled, Value-Based Healthcare Must Value Black Lives. And in this article, there was proposed a framework to incorporate racial justice into value-based care, which included the re-engineering of pay-for-performance models that would include health equity as a key financial measure for success. For example, a Medicare pay-for-performance model grounded in equity could require ACOs to conduct disparities impact assessments and health equity reports to monitor whether institutional level policies proactively reduce health disparities. Another example could be to have some sort of socio-demographic-based risk adjustment that takes into account race and poverty. What are your thoughts about how we as a country can build the economic will to reorient value-based care policies around racial and health justice? Is this type of approach one that we should consider? Well, we have to recognize that when we talk about value-based care, we're talking about the investment that we make and the return on that investment. And what we have to recognize is as long as there are disparities in healthcare, the cost of healthcare will remain high. And so we have to figure out ways that we meet the needs of all Americans such that we begin to bring down the cost of care. Part of me developing CV CHIP was with the understanding that African-American physicians oftentimes would be some of the last that would be included within the value-based movement. I started practicing when HMOs first came online and the HMOs typically would come into our communities and they would sign up a few of the doctors. And there was always this unstated exclusion, many times based on uh, what they consider uh, cost of care, based on quality. And I don't even think we had a, a good measure of quality back then but there would be a certain tokenism which impacted not only the provider being able to practice, but also impacted the, the patients having choice and the physicians that they could see. So what we have to recognize in this value-based movement, if you have African-Americans dying at a higher rate with heart failure, and that's a cost to the system. And not only a cost to the system, then direct costs, but the indirect costs. So it, it behooves us to, to be honest about how we evaluate uh, value-based care and how uh, patients are having equal access to the same care. I can give example of a patient I've taken care of who had heart failure and uh, she was seeing the, the cardiologist and he thought that she should have a certain medication, but he didn't really advocate for it. She came back to me and I said, no, if your insurance doesn't pay for it, then we'll figure out another way to get the medication. And ultimately she got the medication. She's doing well. I mean, it, those are the sorts of things that I think when you are invested in your patient, invested in your community, you will become more of an advocate. And honestly, many African-American patients do not 
have a physician advocate. And I think that the structure of our healthcare system has depersonalized healthcare in a lot of ways. So what we do with our ACOs, first of all, we're trying to provide the best care we can for our patients to bring access to them. But we also want to be able to perform as well as our peers in the more affluent areas of our city and our community. And so uh, I think that is a normalizing factor. And when you see that sort of information is uh, demonstrated in health affairs, the question has to be asked, why is this happening? And not on a high level, but actually drill down to those individual patients to see why was that person's care different from the other person? Well, Dr. Joseph, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, CV chip and how you're handling this current COVID-19 pandemic. And I wanted to relate it to some of the recent headlines. You may have seen last Thursday, there was a study published that looked at life expectancy in the United States, and it dropped to its lowest level in 15 years, and even lower for Black Americans during the first half of the coronavirus pandemic. Overall, life expectancy in the U.S. fell by a full year, the largest drop since World War II, and it's a grim measure of the deadly consequences of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Life expectancy for Black populations declined by 2.7 years, its lowest since 2001, and the disparities highlighted in the study add to the mounting evidence we already discussed around the disproportional effect of healthcare and society on uh, Black Americans. So I wanted to ask you, in this last year, can you discuss how how CVCHIP is addressing your most vulnerable populations during this pandemic crisis to reduce disparities in care? And has your ACO been able to scale up telehealth capacity and infrastructure and bridge the, the digital divide to make sure your patients have access to care, even care that's, that's delivered virtually? And how has CVCHIP been navigating this new normal of COVID-19 financially and operationally, specifically regarding this transition to virtual care? So our CV chip is uh, composed of independent practices. We are all small practices for the most part. I don't think we have any practice right now that has more than six or seven uh, providers, physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, some iteration of that. And what we did, and then part of the mission of CV chip is to sustain the viability of the independent practice. And so when the COVID-19 started and everyone was forced to shelter in, uh, we knew it would be a significant impact on our well-being as individual practices, but also impacting our patients. We didn't have, they didn't have access to us. So part of what we've done with CV Chip is first of all, try to find every resource that we can to help our private practices. We got them information on the PPP loans. We got them information on the CARES Act. We got them information on state and local funds that were available that might be able to help our practices. We also shared with them information about telehealth and how they could scale that up within their individual practices as well. So we tried to provide everything we could so that our practices could keep their doors open. And thankfully, we've all been able uh, to keep our doors open and see patients. We did find out in the early rounds of the PPP that very few of our practices had received the uh, loan, and we started advocating about that. We talked with our legislators and, and state officials 
and we were able for all the practices that were interested in getting PPP loans, they got those. And then, of course, we talked about telehealth and how for most of our practices, it was brand new. They had never done telehealth. And so we have all become adept at doing telehealth. We tried to keep up with the information from CMS about the coding and opportunities for evaluation and management of our patients and billing for those patients. We share that information. We have what we call a CV chip chat which is an early morning meeting every two weeks so that we can bring this type of valuable information to our practices and, and in turn support our patients. And so we have seen a decline in our volume in terms of in-person visits, but we have been able to ramp up with telehealth. When it comes to our patients, we have truly been advocating to them to do all the preventative measures that are needed. We've tried to allow them to have access to us through telephone calls. There was a difficult ability to access testing. And so we shared information as related to that with our practices, how they could get testing supplies or where they could send their patients. We shared public health information within our practices so that patients would know where they could go get tested. So we came together as an organization to make certain that all our practices got the information that they needed. In terms of the outcomes for African-Americans in COVID-19, it's a dismal statistic. I mean, it's frightening. And not only do we hear this information, our patients hear the information, but what we try to impress upon them is, first of all, do those things, the preventative things that are necessary. Second of all, if you have symptoms and try to give them the cardinal symptoms that they should access care more quickly. And so the fact is, these are the illnesses that our patients suffer with and it has put them at increased risk. And so we have been advocating for them to be the first in line to get the vaccine. And then of course, now we hear about the vaccine disparity. So it's a constant struggle, a constant fight, but that's what we've been doing. Dr. Joseph, I wanna shift gears a little bit because I'm so inspired by your commitment to value-based care for underserved populations. And I wanna just highlight that this goes beyond your work in Virginia and ACO work, and it extends to your work as a humanitarian and a medical missionary serving in Haiti. So I'd love to ask you about your missionary work because it means so much to me as I served a two-year mission myself in South Africa and really came to love the people that I served there. And as I understand, when you were growing up in New Bern, North Carolina, you always wanted to be a missionary, but it wasn't until 2005 when you were watching the movie Hotel Rwanda that you were reawakened to this purpose to do more for others in the world. And I understand that your grandma has some influence in this decision as well. And so two months after watching that film, you and your son join a local Christian mission and you go to Haiti and they needed a lead physician and you stepped in in a major way. On this first medical mission trip, you saw more than 100 patients per day, which is an incredible amount of work. And since that time, you haven't stopped. You've been sharing the gospel with the people of Haiti through evangelism, education, and medical care. So can you share your experience as a medical missionary in Haiti with our listeners? And how has that experience fed your soul and provided purpose in your life for your continued work? And I want to recognize that 
the people in Haiti, you know, were 10 years after a terrible earthquake that happened in 2010, where an estimated 250,000 people died, 300,000 were injured, and, and 5 million were displaced. And so I'd love to get an update on what you've seen since that time in the communities that you've been serving. Well, it has been one of the most rewarding experiences in my life, quite frankly. I have met so many wonderful and unique people with my mission work to Haiti. Even greater than that, the ability to inspire others to step up and serve has been overwhelmingly rewarding. My niece, who's a pediatrician, when I came back from my first uh, mission trip, was just so excited after I explained to her the need there. And so she's been going since 2007 every year with the medical mission. And I also do vacation Bible school in the summertime. But when you see people who are in desperate situations and the little that you do can impact their lives as well as their families' lives. And to know that had you not been there at that moment, the outcome would have been different is humbling. It's truly humbling. And each time that we have gone to Haiti, we always have an incident like that, that we know had we not been there at that moment, the outcome would have been different and it would have impacted not just that person's life, but their family, their community. And so I promised God that I would do this and he tested me right away. That's why two months later I was in Haiti and I, I feel like I have been more than rewarded with the whatever sacrifice I've made and the relationships that I've developed and, and the people I've come to know. And so with the pandemic, we were not able to go in 2020. And that has been very difficult for us and certainly difficult for the mission that we support in Haiti and the people that we normally see. And so we're looking forward to 2022 and to be able to go back again. But just to be able to inspire others to go and to help out to step out of their comfort zone, to recognize that living in America, even with its disparities, even with its inequities, is the best place in the world to live. And so that's what Haiti has done for me. Thank you so much, Dr. Joseph, for sharing that personal story. And it, it's so moving. And I commend you for that level of volunteerism. In the ACO as well, I, I know you're very mission-driven, and you mentioned something earlier that resonated with me. You said that a CV chip is really there to sustain the viability of the independent practice. And as I understand, you have several different practices. You mentioned you may have seven physicians in one, but that's really on the high end. I mean, you're probably dealing with smaller practices that are really, you know, struggling. You know, they're they're trying to stay afloat. I mean, especially in these challenging times right now. And you know, I, I remember when the ACO ACO program started and maybe a few years after, I believe it was in 2015 when HHS Secretary Sylvia Burwell, she mentioned these lofty goals and transitioning the U.S. health system to value-based care. And she was saying something along the lines of, 
85% of all payments in the traditional Medicare program would be tied to quality and value and 90% uh, would be tied to value by the end of 2018. So we haven't quite reached that point right now in scaling value-based care, but I, I feel like just the confluence of some of the macroeconomic pressures that have been exacerbated by COVID-19 and, and just now the, the recognition of more than ever that there's disparities in care and opportunities to vastly improve outcomes. I think about how you as the founder and CEO of CV Chip are thinking about your independent practices and making sure that they can transition to value effectively. And, you know, I was preparing for this interview today. I was looking at some of your uh, newsletters and you had a really fantastic playbook to help create a, almost a blueprint to sustain the success of CV Chip. You know, there were some things there about boosting performance of providers and engaging beneficiaries, managing high need patients, reducing avoidable hospitalizations, addressing behavioral health needs, which we'll get into a little bit here in the interview, and obviously leveraging technology and having a strong governance. I, I wanted to ask you just, can you maybe walk us through your journey in working with these practices as the founder and CEO of CV Chip, and how have you progressed over those last eight or nine years, moving away from the simple fundamentals of value-based care, like the AWVs and looking at ER diversion and getting into more kind of sophisticated interventions that are really around social determinants and addressing some of these societal challenges that your patients face that are in the population to which you manage and serve. And the startup of uh, CV Chip, it was really trying to convince doctors that this was the way to go, that healthcare was not turning back, that FIFA service is going to end. So we started this conversation in 2012, and it was really difficult. But as time progressed and the requirements for reporting and uh, quality metrics, some of the smaller practices were becoming overwhelmed with just the day-to-day -day operations. And now you want me to report quality and we have this electronic health record I'm still trying to manipulate. And so CV Chip came along and said, we will help you with that burden. We will help you with the burden of reporting. We will help you in terms of tracking your quality metrics and reporting. And uh, we will help you with workflows, how you can integrate this into your practice and capture this information. And as we talked about this with the practices, they were looking for someone to give them some relief. And so we were able to convince practices to join. And so we started in 2016. And our focus was always on the fact that you need to see your patients. You need to get these people in. These are the annual wellness visit, gives you a capsulated view of your patient, where they are. Uh, but it also focuses the patient on how other things impact their health, not just the medications that they're taking, but their social situations and things that they can modify within their health and gives them a broader view of their health. And that's why I think annual wellness visits are really so crucial within the practice of value-based care. It focuses the physician, but it also focuses the patient. And they both come away learning that there are other things that are more impactful to their health. I have a story of a patient I did an annual wellness visit on, and I was uh, talking to him, noticed that he had a scar on his leg. And and I asked him, how did he get the scar on his leg? Just as part of the, it really wasn't an examination time, but I noticed it. And he said, well, I 
fell down the steps <laughs> and asking, you know, how did that happen as part of that fall risk screening? And, and he says, well, my step is loose on my porch. And I said, well, have you had it fixed? And he was like, no, I can't really afford to get it fixed. Well, part of the collaborations that we have within the ACO are community resources. We, we have to look for community resources to help our patients. And so we have this program called Elder Care, where they actually go out and for no cost or limited cost, do house repairs for patients. And that patient would never have had access to that because he didn't know about it. And we had to have that information. And the old way of practicing medicine, we may know that information, but we definitely weren't required to know that information. So that helped that particular patient at that time. And these are part of what the things that you do within a value-based environment. You look beyond the diagnosis, but look for everything that could potentially impact that diagnosis. And as we move to mature and our delivery of healthcare, we really need to begin to develop stronger linkages and provide access to our patients with uh, community resources that they may not be aware of. We partner with local Senior Connections, which is an agency on aging, and they have resources that we can refer our patients to. A lot of patients are just suffering from loneliness and they need someone to talk to within the Senior Connections. They have the uh, cafes where patients can come and other resources that they have that typically uh, just practicing medicine would not be one of the things that we would look at as prescriptive in terms of what we do as a clinician. So as we develop our capacity within understanding the quality metrics, how to capture those, how to do the workflow, what we continuing on this journey is to develop better coordination of care with community resources, as well as within partners within our ACO. So that's where we are now in the journey. But it, it was difficult recruiting physicians, helping them to understand what this all means. Thank you, Dr. Joseph, for explaining the value journey with CV Chip. And, you know, you mentioned the, the coordination of resources and forming partnerships in the community. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your uh, playbook regarding mental health. And I think about some of the stats that we're hearing now, especially to the point you made earlier about the loneliness of uh, patients, especially those that are elderly. And, you know, right now in our country, one in five Americans, over 51 million are living with, with a behavioral health condition. And there's approximately 20 million individuals in the U.S. with substance use disorder and 9 million people, which are about 4% of the population that have suicidal thoughts in the last year. And of those with mental health or substance abuse issues, unpaid caregivers and minority populations are especially vulnerable. And our nation's longstanding mental health crisis has been exacerbated by various major societal stressors such as the COVID-19 pandemic, a racial inequality, a very heated election season. And now we need to treat mental health conditions more than ever. And it seems like primary care is really at the tip of the spear. So I wanted to ask you, can you share with our listeners your perspective on how to achieve better integration of behavioral health in primary care? 
in the current environment? And what is the difference between behavioral health outcomes, maybe between co-located models versus truly integrated models in the primary care setting that are really leveraging the, the skills and competencies of an interdisciplinary team and, and have established partnerships in the community? Um, have you been able to experience that in your own ACO as you move and mature more into a, a more integrated BH model? So we have within our ACO a preferred provider, so to speak. When, you know, we first started getting our information in terms of risk stratification, looking at the various diseases we were seeing within our CV chip population, 25, 30% of our patients had a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. And then we could also see that these people were accessing the emergency room frequently within uh, Richmond and the other communities that our providers were practicing in, access to mental health, behavioral health is just atrocious. It's impossible to almost to get patients seen sometimes. And then it's fairly unique because oftentimes patients with mental health disorders definitely have to have an affinity for the provider that they see. And so oftentimes patients will come back and say, that person doesn't understand me or all they want to do is give me medication. And so we early on recognized that this was a problem for our patients. At the same time, when COVID came, it just seemed to explode, especially anxiety and depression the impact of people having to shelter in or families not getting along and just feeling isolated just exacerbated all of that. We had been working with this partner trying to do design a method whereby our patients could have access. And part of what happened with COVID was the ability to do telehealth and have conversations with patients over the phone and so we had had some small demonstration projects within my practice, within another one of my colleagues' practices, and we had kind of worked out the kinks with that. And it has made a tremendous impact. We have not looked at all the data just yet from last year to see the number of the financial impact of it. But on an anecdotal basis, my patients have tremendously benefited from having someone that they can talk to on a regular basis and using the behavioral health codes that Medicare had put in place. So we are now trying to get all of our practices to participate. Again, as independent practices, we can't mandate that they do these things, but uh, several of our practices have seen the benefit and others or developing that relationship with the mental health providers. And we're presently looking at another provider in terms of substance use disorders, because again, during the COVID experience that we're going through, the use of alcohol and other drugs has been significantly increased. And so we're now in conversation with someone about how we can also assist our practices and have our practices have a go-to place in terms of recognizing these illnesses as well as uh, having a consistent and reliable referral network. So I've been really excited about that. It was part of the holistic approach to healthcare 
that for too long we have not adopted in this country. It was mental health and it was, you know, seeing the physician. And so we are now trying to wrap our arms around the whole patient. And so that's been really exciting. Dr. Joseph, I'd like to ask you about your advocacy work in seeking higher reimbursement for primary care. We really need leaders like you to speak up on behalf of primary care. It's just simply not a good time for PCPs right now. They've been marginalized for years. They've experienced immense moral injury and high levels of burnout. And now as a result of COVID-19, primary care practices are projected to lose upwards of $15 billion, which is a revenue loss of 70,000 for every primary care physician in the country. That's a lot of money for a PCP, especially considering that they're on the bottom of the earnings ladder as a physician specialty, earning on average around 230,000 per year. So primary care physicians are really worried about their future. They're worried about their family members. They're worried about their staff and they're worried about how to make payroll. Last year, seven of the nation's largest primary care physician organizations released recommendations on the urgent need to change the way primary care is delivered and financed. This group was convened by the Larry A. Green Center and X4 Health, the American Academy of Family Physicians and others, and, and it created a unified vision to change the conversation and modernize primary care as we know it. Can you provide our listeners with your perspective on how primary care should be financed so that in, clinicians can be insured to be able to offer care that achieves better health, seamless integration, and health equity and lower costs? Again, our healthcare system has not been structured in a way that benefits the total community and that we have for so long been specialist oriented. And even when there have been conversations about improving reimbursement for primary care physicians, it's always been with the thought that the specialists would get less. And so there hasn't been a true partnership with physicians to acknowledge that primary care is so fundamental to good health care in the United States. I have been particularly gratified by the work of the Larry Green Center. Dr. Rebecca Etz has uh, been one of our guests at one of our board meetings to discuss their work. And what I have encouraged my providers within CV Chip is to, to be politically active, to advocate, which means write a letter, call and tape your voice and let your legislators hear from you about the difficulty it is in practicing primary care. When COVID-19 started and everybody was inundating the hospitals, what the healthcare system also recognized is that Primary care physicians may not be on the front line, but they were the rear guard to keep the healthcare system moving. And once they were threatened by decreased volumes of patients, what's going to happen when everybody turns away from the emergency room to go back to get healthcare? It, it was not going to happen. And so the Larry Green Center has, from day one, done weekly surveys to get the pulse of what was happening to primary care physicians. And through that work, and, and now with the other organizations joining them, legislators can truly see that we have to defend primary care in this country, and that has to be reimbursed in a, a logical way. Because we were built on a FIFA service system, it was always difficult in terms of 
primary care physicians being reimbursed. You can't make it on an evaluation and management code in the construct that we presently have it. And so primary care physicians were forced to do procedures and add on things. And I think this is an opportunity to truly look at the intellectual capacity required to evaluate and manage a patient, as well as to coordinate their care and to begin to deal with some of the social determinants. And what that means is that they have to be reimbursed for the effort that's put forth. And I believe that primary care puts forth a significant effort in maintaining the health of patients. And so I'm hopeful that this is going to improve with the joint advocacy of these multiple organizations coming together and to have an organization such as the Larry Green Center actually looking at this in an objective fashion and showing our legislators and both on the national and state level, the impact that it's had can only improve. I don't think we've had that type of collaboration in the past to advocate for primary care physicians. There are only a few African-American ACOs in the country. And I think that's regrettable. I think that in this whole process of developing ACOs, we have to, again, make certain that all communities are represented and the government hasn't really made any particular considerations for that. But I think that's the question, again, that should be asked when we look at the 560 plus, I think it's 560 now, of the MSSP program. And there are only maybe three or four African-American-led organizations. I think that is a question that should be asked. Well, I'm grateful CB Chip is one of those. <laughs> Dr. Joseph, I wanted to thank you for joining us today and in just your advocacy for primary care and just your humanitarian efforts. And I was thinking as we wrap up our conversation today, if maybe you could provide our listeners with your leadership perspective, being a successful African-American physician and entrepreneur, humanitarian, I, you know, I, I think about this quote that Maya Angelou once said, my mission in life is not merely to survive but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. So with that in mind, can you tell our listeners maybe how your journey in value-based care has allowed you to thrive as a leader? And what lessons can you share with others who are following your same passion? It's kind of hard to sum up. I've been on this journey 40 years, but that quote from uh, Maya Angelou is remind you that whatever you do as a leader, you have to be willing to be in the trenches. Uh, leadership is, is not appointed, but gained through experience and, and dedication and not just for yourself, but to always look to your left and to your right to make sure whomever's on your team is keeping up with you. And so my leadership style has been to understand the rules of the game, learn those rules, and then execute. But in execution, recognize that there's always others that are helping you to get wherever you're going. You never get to a place in life on your own. And you have to always be willing to help someone else to move into that leadership position. And so as uh, CV Chip has matured, my greatest desire is to see younger physicians 
uh, choose private practice, be dedicated to their community, and get involved in a value-based movement such that they can understand the rules of the game and assume the leadership. Well, thank you again, Dr. Joseph, for joining us today. And I'm convinced that Central Virginia Coalition of Healthcare Providers, Stevie Chip, can win this race to value with your leadership. Thank you so much again for joining us today in this week's Race to Value. Thank you, Dr. Joseph. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.